Hi, I'm Dr. Stephen Ball, psychotherapist, and I'm on the Big Mouth Pharmacist Podcast. My biggest pet peeve is that it feels like we've been through this before with other epidemics, particularly in my case, HIV, and we just haven't learned those lessons that we got from HIV and applying them to the COVID epidemic. Calling out the myths, misinformation, and BS in the wellness industry. This is the Big Mouth Pharmacist Podcast. Here's your host, holistic pharmacist, supplement expert, Big Mouth. Dr. Neil Smoller. Broadcasting from the most famous small town in America, Woodstock, New York. It's the podcast that pulls back the curtain on that supplement industry so you can get the wellness experience that you deserve without all that extra BS. How's quarantine going, everybody? Going stir crazy yet? I want to get some of that quarantine time. I got my first day off in about a month. The other day, I feel a little bit more rested. My other pharmacist is back. We own a pharmacy, of course, so we're out here working our tail feathers off. It's gotten a little bit easier. We've gone to crisis mode, and now we're back down to just being plain hectic, which is nice, you know? Being hectic is better than wanting to rip your face off from running around like an animal all day, you know? So as you may have heard on our past episodes, or if you're following me on social media, we've locked down our store pretty darn tight, and I'm not afraid of getting the Rona, as the kids call it. We're doing curbside pickup only. We're closed to the public. We got Wu-Tang blasting and we're all cursing like sailors in here. So don't stand too close to the glass. We only open the door to do a curbside pickup and we're not having lengthy conversations with people. It's just like, sadite, sadite. And that's about it. Anything more than that, we make people call us. And we're doing some pretty tight contact tracing. And I'm really thankful that the people that are still here every day are pretty happy being hermits in their houses when they're not working. So... We're going to talk about contact tracing. What is contact tracing? Well, it's what's going to save us. It's going to get us out of this mess, I think. I want to teach you about it, and I'm going to encourage you to start doing it right now. It should be noted that we've got a long, long way to go. There's a lot that needs to happen before we can go back to our our new normal and get out of our houses. One of the indicators is going to be decreasing caseloads. Basically, they feel, and this is going to be region by region, Once the number of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths start to decrease over a trend of at least 14 days, that's when you can say, okay, this region is ready to start preparing for the next phase. Another is going to be accessibility to testing. If we have the ability to test everybody that have symptoms or to see who's had it and who hasn't, that's going to be another thing that'll help us. And then finally, the last one is going to be contact tracing. So this is going through the list of all the people that you've had contact with and all the places you've been over like the past 14 days or more, they might even go a little bit further. So if you pair that with testing, that intelligence allows us to control the moving parts a bit more than, you know, just like free society as it was before. And as I've said on past episodes, if we had the testing and the contact tracing before, we'd have radically fewer deaths and a pretty normal spring and summer for at least 90% of us, you know, 10% of us would be quarantined, but that's a lot better than all of us. So here's my suggestion. Contact tracing is obviously important. You should do it as your new habit. It's your second new habit, I should say. Your first new habit is you're going to wear a mask in public, whether it's going to be homemade or one of those official ones. I don't really know, but that's going to be a new normal, just putting it out there before it becomes more real for you. 
the second thing is doing contact tracing, keeping a list of the people that you've been in contact with and the places you visited. Basically, just make a list who you've seen. And then in the next column, the date and time that you saw them last. And then a third column, what's their status? Have they had COVID positive tests and recovered? Have they been exposed to anybody? And just kind of keep tabs on that. If you're doing what you're supposed to do, this list will be nice and short. The people you live with, anyone you work with, if you're an essential worker, that's all it should be. So if you maintain this list, it'll further accelerate your ability to get back to normal as the weeks progress. Now, again, if you do contact tracing today, it's not going to mean that you can go back to work. Unless, of course, you've had COVID. If you've had COVID, you can just do your normal life. But anyway, we've got a long ways to go. So the peak in New York, I believe, will happen between the 13th and the 15th, maybe a little bit later. That means that we have to wait two more weeks to get to that point, and then we have at least two weeks of a downward trend after that point. So we're definitely into May, if not middle of May, probably June for New York at least. There's a lot of other factors, of course, that go into that. But this mindset of contact tracing is going to be a new normal for you, so you might as well do it now while you've got the time. So we're all in on COVID, of course. That's all we talk about, all we're blogging about. So I asked today's guest on to give us some really unique insight to COVID. So Dr. Stephen Ball is a psychotherapist who was essential during the HIV epidemic. So he'll tell you all about what he did in that episode. I won't spoil it. But I've had Stephen on to discuss the parallels between HIV and COVID. And then we talked about coping strategies and how to just wrap our head around all of this. So here's Dr. Stephen Ball and I talking about COVID, HIV, and coping. Stephen, can you tell me how a drama therapist becomes an HIV advocate? I actually got into being a social worker because of AIDS. And uh, during that time, I started groups for HIV negative gay men that was really about prevention and stopping people from getting infected. And those groups went to gay men's health crisis. And the health crisis was and is largest gay aid service organization. Well, let me take the gay out of that, aid service organization. And um, while I was there, I remained as a consultant in the prevention department for many years. And my work was focused on moving away from the very simple messages we had that were educational to really incorporating some psychology into our messaging. And so when COVID came on the scene, I was immediately triggered back to those times. And um, it feels like there's so many similarities that we'll talk about today that I am using as a psychotherapist to help my clients with their psychology. So psychotherapist, so like the HIV side of it. So what were you? Were you an activist? Were you a consultant? Were you, mm -hmm. what was the title that you had during the HIV epidemic or whatever? Well, First, I was just someone who was in the midst of it. Mm -hmm. As a, I actually was working as a drama therapist in a very traditional day treatment center. And I was working with a lot of chronic mentally ill clients. And then HIV hit. And um, what I was, as a witness, I was watching a lot of people struggling how to get through this. And um, there's a lot of new age talk and a lot of misinformation out there. And because of that, I saw people who were trying to live and trying to really 
figure out how to survive this. I wanted some real life strategies. And so I went to social work school. And um, as soon as I started social work school, I started realizing I was a group worker, that what was getting ignored were the worried well, or at, by that time we had negatives and positives, negative people who got tested negative and didn't have the virus and positives. So I was still, I was lucky enough to be HIV negative mm -hmm. and I was feeling left out because the focus was on people who were sick and dying. And then there were all of us who were just like COVID, afraid of getting infected, afraid of doing something wrong, and also dealing with all the grief and loss and fear. Right. So I go to social work school, and as soon as I start, I realize there's a need to do groups for the HIV-negative gay men. Mm -hmm. And this is a great little story. So um, I actually make a sign that's, and it has some questions like, are you scared of getting infected? Are you overwhelmed with grief? Do you not know how to socialize and be sexual? And I made a couple of signs, put them out in my neighborhood in New York City. And before I knew it, and this is the truth, I got 60 responses in two days. I had left my phone number. Wow. And the truth is, this got such a response that I found a couple of friends. We started doing groups. Then the New York Times came to me. Wow. And they said, let's talk about what's happening out there. You got such a response. This is by 1993, the beginning of 1993. The groups I was doing got a front cover story in the New York Times front page. From there, I got asked by Gay Men's Health Crisis to do the groups as part of their prevention department. And while I was there, I helped reset up the prevention department to get away from just the messaging because they were doing trainings and how to stay safe and safer sex, but somehow people were still getting infected. So my work was to really find out what was missing in prevention. Started these groups, worked there for a while, and then I, saw, I was still doing my practice, so I remained a consultant in the background for many, many years. And I wrote about it, I wrote a book on strategies to survive, and um, went all over lecturing about to different groups about how we could figure out how if we deal with our psychology, if we deal with our fear, and if we deal with our loss, and there was survivor guilt, which I have a feeling might eventually come up with COVID, we are more likely to protect ourselves, more likely to understand what we need to do to move forward. So there's the parallels, and that's basically what I was doing. Yeah, that's that's excellent. And I think that, you know, as we've talked before, there's a ton of parallels between uh, HIV epidemic and the COVID pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like what we should do is just kind of like walk through those and and just kind of give everybody, <laughs> you know, the thing that's going to stink is that as we're talking and just as you're talking, I'm thinking like, uh -huh. Why didn't we learn? Like, why are can we? Let's talk about that first <laughs> before we do do the interview. Why <laughs> is it that we're still here? Like, you know, we could talk about the similarities and list them all, and and everybody go, oh, wow, this is so similar. But it's like, why the frig have we not learned from <laughs> any of this stuff? Right? 
Right. Well, let's just say we did learn a lot from HIV and AIDS. Mm-hmm. And since Fauci was there back then, oh, he I was. think he was. What was he, he doing back then? I, I believe he was still doing that part, you know, I don't know if he was head. I think he was the head guy of the CDC. Mm. And there was a lot of AIDS activists. That's how the group ACT UP started. Mm-hmm. They were pushing for him to change protocols to get cures, any medications to help people. They were really pushing him hard. And he was more of, a, it seems to me, if I remember correctly, more like a company man and was very was not thinking of it in terms of crisis. He was moving kind of slow. So act, and there were a lot of drugs down the pipeline, like COVID. Mm-hmm. And so it was gay men mm-hmm. and women who started this group ACT UP that was a couple of years after gay men's health crisis started that really pushed. But I think we, has, we all know we forget history. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he's remembering that yeah. and he's holding on to those parallels. It's interesting. I'm sure I want to say, I don't want to scare people when I say this is similar to HIV because there are clearly some differences here. Yeah. But history taught us that first the federal government was very slow to respond to HIV. Yeah. Just the way it's slow to respond here. It didn't take it seriously. It said it's, those people, those people, it was the gay people or Haitians, it's not us, it's not going to happen to us. So that was one big similarity. The virus was not, even though it was around for a long time, it wasn't studied. Mm -hmm. I actually had a friend who was called a long-term non-progressor. In other words, he found out that he had HIV and he actually found out in the late 80s but then they went back, and they'll probably do this with COVID. They went back to a test in 1978 where they did a test for hepatitis in gay men, mm-hmm. and they found HIV around back then. If he had HIV virus in his body. So it's just so fascinating. This stuff has been around, and it gets minimized, and its spread gets ignored. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's pretty... It's pretty amazing, the parallels. Uh, you know, COVID, obviously, much more deadly, much more quick. Um, quick, yes. You know, the, you know, the idea that um, uh, the leadership failed us again, um, yes. despite, despite learning. You know, even the Ebola, I think the Ebola response is really a, a good uh, parallel to draw, or I guess, a good example to show like what it should have been. Uh, most of us downplay Ebola. Yes. Oh, Ebola wasn't that big of a deal. I don't know why it was that big of a deal. It was a, not that big of a deal because of the leadership, because it was yes, handled exactly multinational front. Um, all of our experts put all their energy in there. We tracked the few people down that had it, and it it didn't blow up. It didn't turn into something because we managed it correctly. And HIV and COVID right. are examples of people dragging their feet. And so what, you know, again, I, you're going to hate me for saying this, but I was 13 in 1993. So <laughs> <laughs> when uh, the leadership then, was it politically motivated? What was, it, because I feel like that's what's going on here. I feel like the reason that the leadership dragged their feet up until about yesterday uh, was because they mm-hmm, wanted the mm-hmm. economy to be strong because if the economy is strong, the stock market looks good. That helps re-election. And that's really what I think the motivation here is just to not grind the economy to a halt. And, yes, yes. Um, and so, like, what was, was that the same deal with HIV? No, no, I think it wasn't. It was, 
It was really about stigma towards gay people. I mean, right. That's the bottom line. Yeah. And mm-hmm. A discriminatory type stance. Discriminatory. Versus- it was horrible. I mean, literally in Congress, there were talk about putting gay people in camps together. Yeah. Um, it got that bad. And that was actually a proposal on the Congress floor. Boy, we um, love concentration camps, don't we? We love quarantining people and putting quarant- us. We do. <laughs> like <laughs> poor, the poor immigrant children, the Japanese internment camps, obviously the Jewish population. Exactly. Powerful people just like to put people in camps. Like, I don't understand what the mentality here is. You know, it's yeah, us I, versus I, them, as you were saying, you know, it's, it's such a mess. Well, the, the good news with HIV, I would say, is it really pushed gay liberation forward. It made yeah. everyone know we were there. Mm-hmm. We had a voice. We were powerful. And yeah. we wouldn't be where we are if it wasn't for what happened with HIV and AIDS. Yeah. And, I, and I feel like there's something, and we can get into this later on, but very positive. It's going to be a reset if we let it happen around what happened with COVID and the government and, and kind of messaging that's put out there. Because the, you know, if I go, there's the messaging blows me away. The messaging is important now at the beginning of a crisis. Yeah. My message is that messaging is not going to work long-term and we can get into that. Right. And that's another thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's the lesson that I've learned in this early phase is that people are getting lots of information. They need leadership. And we look to the elected officials. Those people are not leaders, obviously. Sometimes they can be, but most of the time they are not. I think a lot of people are respecting Cuomo because he's demonstrating leadership and giving people, you know, direction. Um, So, you know, the, Mm, mm. let me go, let me, can I correct something I said? You asked me if it was a political. Yeah, sure. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, going back to Reagan, who was mm-hmm. president at the time and famously did not mention HIV AIDS until Rock Hudson got it. Mm-hmm. It was political because he did want he didn't want to sound pro-gay right. to his base. Yeah. And so he did withhold that message until famous people like Rock Hudson, the first one of the first famous people got it. That's when he was forced to mention it. So it was political yeah it was, that was kind of secondary so. yeah I, it's just this guy people suck right? i mean whatever. <laughs> it's like we there's going to be probably two hundred thousand people that will die from this in 2020 and it's all because of some silliness like this could have been handled where it's 2020 we sh- there should not be more than a few hundred dead i mean south korea i think that's where they're at a couple hundred people have died from this and we got hit at the same time and and yeah, they have a smaller population, but I mean, they've also controlled it. We, we lost 200 people last night in New York City. So yeah, and the, shocking. The, the, yeah, the frustrating part for me, of course, is that unlike HIV, so, mm-hmm. so here's a parallel that I'd like to draw. So the PPE and the frontline workers, mm-hmm. did they have the same level of risk or fear as they did then? Um, because I know like I grew up in a universal precaution mindset, meaning everyone has hepatitis, everyone has HIV. That's how you have to think about it. So you have to use all the protective gear that you need to, to prevent you from getting sick, right? So PPE was, has been a part of my right, right. medical training. Um, and now we're sending our warriors out to battle without guns or bullets because we don't have enough PPE. So can you 
draw any parallels to that? I mean, I don't know if you. Yes, yeah, yes, yes. This, I think, where where my mind goes is, what happened is we didn't have all the information. It hadn't been studied. We weren't. I mean, there has been so many theories in terms of COVID or what makes it contagious and how and you know, is it in the air? Same thing with HIV. So at first, people were, a lot of frontline workers were afraid to even walk into a room. They would go with hazmat suits. Yeah. But they didn't understand. They thought, they didn't quite understand it was how, if it was sexually or socially or through saliva, was it in saliva? They didn't understand that. So we were prepared. A lot of them were afraid to go in. And then there were the brave souls who said, this is really important. Important, and they did whatever it took. The difference is here, we eventually found out they couldn't get infected like that. But people mm-hmm. would, we would walk into rooms and I have horrible memories of just being, all of us being totally covered over because we didn't have all the information and that's right. the parallel here. One of my favorite iconic pictures is Princess Diana shaking the hand of an HIV or an AIDS patient, actually. Exactly. And, and that was a very, like, ooh, wow, she, she, did, she was very brave to do that, yeah. Yeah, you couldn't get it by being by touching. So there is that similarity. So, so we didn't know how it spread, and, and then there's a lot of misinformation, big surprise. Um, there wasn't testing. No testing, <laughs> right? And so we the had testing no testing for years. Is, is absolutely insane for this one, because this one, the testing could, you know, mm-hmm. now there's tests that are rapid, 15-minute, blood tests and you'll know if you have antibodies to them and we still can't even deploy those again the richest nation in the world we can't get these because that's my hang up is that if we're going to botch this um from a like containment standpoint we better have the test to back it up because we don't have the we botched it up we don't have the test and now our people are are getting thrown like you know lamps of the slaughter. It's, it's just horrible. You know, the, it's like everything that they could have done wrong. And in HIV, the testing, first it was a long-term test, and then they got into a short-term test. Yeah. And it made such a difference in the way people behave. So the same lesson here, as soon as we knew who had it, who didn't, mm-hmm. it'd be, it was initially really helpful. And if you had a lot of anxiety, you could get a quick test, which we still have today for right. HIV. And it, it, it helps lessen the anxiety. Right now, the waiting for the test is so anxiety-provoking. Right. Um, and not knowing is the most different. It's the not knowing for everyone's psychology that brings us back to feeling helpless and like a child. Right. And I don't know if you, you have been following my social media stuff, but uh, our social yes, media director, she's been, um, she had... COVID. She had a moderate. Yes. Yes. It, I without saw a doubt. Got her test. 10 days later, she had a call and finally get the response. And they said it was negative. I'm like, that is not possible. <laughs> it is not physically possible. There is no way that you didn't have this disease. So we have all these false negatives wow. because of the implementation. Right. And I think the number is as high as 30% is, is some of the reports um, with false negatives. So it's, you know, testing obviously being a very strong parallel. And then, you know, the idea of the fear that is so, I guess, widespread, the idea that mm-hmm. I don't know who has it, so I have to act like everybody has it, but now I'm afraid because, well, I mean, I don't know. I, I want yeah, 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 yeah. I I to say that people are afraid. 
<laughs> because I know a lot of people are. They're very afraid. They're taking it very seriously. But then I went to the grocery store. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, uh, and people are like mocking me because I had a mask on. <laughs> and I'm like, there's 10 of you standing on top of each other in the meat department. I'm very confident that I may have a little bit more information. So there's this fear, <laughs> right. but, but there's also the misinformation that's playing into it. So And some people, one of their strategies for coping is kind of denial or counterphobic. You know, I'm not going to be afraid of this. You could be afraid of it. I'm not going to be afraid of it. I'm I'm a risk taker. I'm going to go out there. I'm not going to buy into what everyone's doing. And that's a way to, some people deal with anxiety. Same thing with HIV. People, believe it or not, there were people who at one point wanted to get infected because they were so tired of the fear of not getting infected. Wow. That there were parties where people would try to have this as sex mm-hmm. in order to get infected so they didn't have to worry about being infected anymore. It was a, a very small group of people who did that. But right. in psychology, there's a counterphobic reaction that says, this isn't going to get me. Yeah. Thank God the chicken pox parties weren't like that, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they yeah. crossing a line there, you know? So HIV is very similar. So then what could we have learned or what should we have learned in executing here? And I guess, mm-hmm. how can we take some lessons and, and move forward? I think there's a lot here. Yeah. And some of it's in the messaging. You know, everyone's like the, the president says, as soon as someone says you calm down, Calm down. (laughs) It's like, okay, that that actually makes you more anxious. Of course. Never in the history of calm down has calm down ever calmed someone down. (laughs) Right, right. right. (laughs) And so it was like, wash your hands every time, use a condom every time, uh, treat everyone as if all those messages. Mm -hmm. Right now, I think those are the right messages. Yeah. Right now, in the short term. Because I think I'm... I'm thinking short-term and long-term. So I think right now we have to start with that, just educating people and get that into the frontal cortex, the front part of our brain that thinks. Yeah. So that, that becomes kind of the first responder in the way we look at this. But we know that for different people, very quickly, there's emotions and there's anxiety. Different parts of our brain respond differently. So sometimes if you want to see, I just, I talked to a client the other day and some clients are visiting their elderly parents and some are not. Right. And because they like, what's more important? And they almost forget the messaging because there's a need relationally to connect. So then we kind of had to go inside and look at what is he doing to tamp down his anxiety. And this, t- this time, anxiety is a good thing as long as it doesn't so take over your body that you get depressed and shut down. Right. Initially, we want to go with those messages. But somewhere along the line, we want to teach everyone how, to, how they experience fear, how to be mindful of that. Mm-hmm. What happens? You're fine when you're by yourself, maybe. Well, what happens is that between two people, the intersubjective experience of wanting to connect or seeing someone you know and forgetting the spatial stuff, that takes another level of experience and tuning in for people. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Of course, yeah. And, you know, so it's not only just the anxiety uh emotion that people are dealing with, but it's the frustration. One of the pieces that I wrote was about acceptance, 
the idea that right, right. You know, if we don't accept that this is how it is, you're going to create a whole nother level of suffering. And that is going to add to the anxieties and add to the fears, which then makes this whole thing work. And you won't be able to think very clearly at all, obviously. So, yes, you know, I go back to those HIV negative groups I started and what I was hearing from people is once they started depriving themselves, mm-hmm. a lot of them first started just the way we are now. You know, no, it was like no sex. This is like basically no socializing. And I heard someone said, and you probably have heard this, rather, you know, it's we need to keep socializing. It's not, we need to find ways to keep socializing. But they had, they went from nothing to feeling so deprived that people were making mistakes along the way. Right. And that deprivation would take over and they would go into shutdown mode, which also means dissociation, which means denial. So everything you have in your head kind of goes out the window. Right. There's an opportunity for all of us to learn how we deal with fear, how we deal with anxiety. Mm -hmm. And know if you have one anxious part, you have another polarized part in your brain that's helping minimize it or it's a reassuring part, or it's not going to happen to me, or there's some other part. And to know both, there's a pull inside all of us. That's normal and natural. You right. know, we shouldn't punish people for making mistakes. We should help them understand. People are going to do stupid things. They're, they're not paying attention to their internal experience. So we have to start giving messages, just not what's about the external experience, but the internal experience. But that's right. me. That's a psychotherapist speaking, right? <laughs> that's my bread and butter. <laughs> right. So, I mean, around the messaging and around the psychological yes. experience, because I think they go hand in hand. Um, so there are, I feel there are two groups right now in, in what a lot of the experts are calling there's like basically a three to four phase approach from going from where we are to society back mm-hmm. as normal, right? Um, I was just reading a nice paper on it. Right, I might even right. write my blog around it. So, so we're in this phase one piece where we are trying to contain the virus and trying not to overload our systems yes, too, yes. too friggin' late, right? So we've already, we've already blown that one. And within this, there's messaging that has to be said. And as you're saying, the messaging is correct. The messaging is wash your hands, clean your surfaces, take every precaution, social distance, but also quarantine basically. And treat everyone as if they're infected, I think is a right. fair parallel. Right. It's a very, very smart parallel. And within right. that, though, within the messaging, there are two groups. There are the people that understand and believe this and trust this. And then there, there's the, the macho, the people that you're talking right, about. Right. So it's almost like, as you were saying, on that spectrum of emotions, you have those that kind of move more towards the anxiety side and more who move towards the, um, I guess, defense mechanism side, you know? Yeah, yeah, yes, and, yes. And so like we have these two groups. So the is there any different coping me- how do we crack those two different groups? Because the people that are on the one side leaning towards anxiety, how do we help them cope? And then how do we get these macho people to actually take this serious without the bodies piling up? Because I, I feel like our president asterisk is in that right side. He has other motivations, he's so distanced from it, he can't really comprehend it. And it was only when he saw the morgues mm-hmm. uh, on wheels that were refrigeration trucks that he, he started to shift his tone, right? Right, and right. And so without having bodies piling up in, say, Ulster County, New York, where Woodstock is, 
how do we get those people to kind of cope? And then how do we help those like actual like tactics? Like let's help people because they're out there stressing right now. Right. Great, great question. And I think it's good to kind of divide it into two people, but understand if I kind of do this anxiety polarization that we all have some anxiety Mm -hmm. and then we have this other part that minimizes or reassures to understand I'm going to put it on that side of the divide. Some people are minimizing, can't deal with the anxiety and the emotional fear. And then there are those who are just in denial. So I'm going to change it a little mm-hmm. that um, everyone's doing some version of coping. That's right. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we have different messages for different people. First, we're, we're not going to reach everyone. You know, that's un- unfortunately... That's true. And they're going to, they're, again, the lesson from HIV is some people, no matter what messaging, there's too much psychologically going on. They, they, can, they can't break through to really pay attention to what's going inside their body um, and what's really going on. And, and those people, I'm just going to put to the side a little. Then there are people who are on the fence. Mm-hmm. Um, who are, are taking the messaging but forget very easily what I, I'd like to see, you know, getting people, I'm a, I'm a group worker, so getting people just to start engaging with other people around it, um, us mental health professionals to get out there and start changing the messaging a little that mm-hmm. says, okay, give them the power. We, don't, we all do need to socialize. It's great that you want to kind of be out there and that you want to connect to people and you want things to get back to normal. But kind of give them a way to customize their response. So rather than telling, because some people, you tell them what to do. Look at the, the, our president. Mm-hmm. I, I, if you tell him what to do, he's going to push back. He's a perfect example. Right. So you don't tell them what to do. You kind of lead them along, you ask them what they would like to do and start from there. You, know, right. you start from there because they're not going to respond to these hard, don't do this, don't do that. That's what you're seeing out there. Right. Because it challenges them. It challenges their, I guess, their ego. It challenges their confidence, whatever it does. And then it's seen as an attack. And that's where, where all this comes from, right? Right. And a lack of individuality. Mm-hmm. You know, we're a, we're a culture of individuals. Yeah. And, and there's something about that. So you have to help people. And I could see messages on television to help people kind of just be in touch with what they, and this is happening. What do you want to do? What can you do? How do we customize it to people who are really independent and finding something to do for their country? You know? Right. And, and uh, appeal to different parts of them. Mm-hmm. I see we all have multiple parts and we want to kind of empower the parts that really work. And there are ways to do that. The easier group is the ones who are anxious. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to, because they're going to come to support groups. There's so many resources online Mm -hmm. of, of ways to kind of be in touch with fear. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, I could even, if, if we have time, there's such simple ways just to go inside. And I'd ask everyone, go inside, close your eyes, um, find your breath. Mm-hmm. And, and 
this is, can I do this with you? It's a short two minute thing or. Yeah. Well, I mean, so my thought was, as you're yeah. saying it, of course you're going to do it for the podcast listeners, but I think we, we should maybe like do a webinar mm. and we can have our people, uh, we'll send it out to our group and then we'll have you come on and talk about it, you know, and do like a little presentation about this, you know, I would love people. that. I would yeah, love be that. Great. Anything we could do to help people, let's do it, you know? So, right, right. um, and then I'll get everybody charged up about supplements at the end of it. So we like, no more <laughs> zinc, stop this vitamin C. I just had another, th- yeah, I just had another thought because one thing, again, back to what we learned with HIV is what we would ask people to do is, um, I'm going to date myself again to try to understand what kind of risk taker you are in the world. Mm -hmm. So rollerblading was popular back then. Mm -hmm. And there were some people who went in rollerblades without any protective gear, without the knee guards, without the elbow guards, the people who crossed the street on the, you know, when the light has changed, they went out there with nothing. And then there were those who put on everything. And the first thing we said is get just identify what kind of risk taker you are. Mm-hmm. And are you risk adverse or do you like to put yourself out there? And once you know that and just people understand that and have some awareness of it, they start and, and you understand that there's a danger in getting this virus. That alone, they're going to be assessing, oh, what am I doing here? Just to talk about some very simple everyday, what kind of risk taker if you like to be risky and go out there, those are the folks you see in the supermarket. Yeah. But if you get them to just think about that and just question it for one second, you, they have more power to adjust their behavior because they brought some consciousness to it. And that's, so even those groups, I don't want to discount them totally. I sound like I was discounting them. Mm-hmm. Um, they have more power to adjust their situation and decide. Now, if they want to be risk takers, they're going to be risk takers. And that's their whole identity. And unfortunately, they're going to affect other people. Um, But there are simple strategies for those folks that we can do. And it's all coming back to me, how we work with those who are hard to get. Right. (laughs) That's the ones we're most concerned about, right? Right. Of course, because they're the ones that are going to delay this until freaking June, you know? Exactly. Uh, By stomping their feet and saying, this isn't real, or I'm too... It's tough for this, or I'm not going to worry about it. Like all the stuff that you were saying. So, right, so, right. So the so the messaging is the big piece. The other piece that I kind of want to talk about because mm-hmm. I mean HIV and AIDS. We're kind of getting to the end of it. We're we've got excellent technology, excellent testing. Um, right. We're not afraid of it anymore, you know. But it took 30 years <laughs> or <Exactly>. more. <laughs> so I hope this doesn't happen for this. Of course. So let's talk about emotional stamina, I guess. And when right, you see people right. starting to riot the Dunkin' Donuts and uh, raiding for the coffee. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're right. It, it took a really long time um, to change the system. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's, it's the exhaustion that I'm concerned about. And I mean, I'm feeling it being stuck in the house and all of us are. Yeah. So, um, well, it was very smart of you guys to get out of the city early. You know, you uh, you you uh, you fled before everybody fled before it was cool. You know, and uh, got up to the country because it is much easier to be in quarantine up here. I was just saying to my wife, we yes. walked around our neighborhood. We have a couple acres. All of our uh, the development we're in, everybody's kind of got the space. It's in the woods, so 
it's nice. I mean, it's, it's tough because you want to go to your friends and start drinking and all of that stuff. So that starts to weigh on people that are quarantining, you know, but then if you're in a box in Manhattan and the sirens are blaring and people are dying all around you, there's, there's this exhaustion that, that comes into play. Yeah. I mean, those folks, it's because they're in their normal life in certain ways. They're walking and talk to my clients. They're walking the streets and seeing empty streets and it feels like it feels like they've been through an armageddon and they yeah. are, we are you know it yeah, you is it's funny somebody said you should watch the marvel infinity war <laughs> and then after the snap go walk outside because it feels like it actually happened <laughs> it's, right it's so horrible. that's <laughs> that freaks you out. Well, yeah. we are in, I mean, spiritually, we are yeah. in something like that. We, we, I won't get into that, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah. it is about big social change. But those folks are, conf- in the city, it's the loss of their, I'm not confronted. I'm having a slightly different life up here. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it helps me. I've never lived at this house full time. So it's yeah. like, oh, what's it like to live here? Those who are living their everyday life, in the same place and just feeling the loss. Yeah. There is, you know, we're also dealing with grief of our everyday experiences. Yeah. And grief is a natural process. Right. And, you know, I would say to everybody, the work is to take some time and just let yourself feel the grief. The more you let yourself feel the grief, the more it won't take, it's paradoxical, the more it right. won't take you over. The right. more you try to shove it away and try to act like everything's normal, the more it will take you over because it's right. going to keep coming back and saying, pay attention to me. It's a part of living that we need to pay attention to. So I don't know if I'm asking, answering your question, but... Well, you're answering a lot of questions here. So right. let's, let's talk about that endurance part of it the idea yes. that we may not have any stamina for this so what are the things that we can do or uh like mechanisms or like do you want to just address the stamina how long do you think people will go before and mass we start losing our minds you know <laughs> right right <laughs> i have i have no idea i mean <laughs> i think again if i go back to hiv you know at the beginning it was no, people, people were able to hold on for a long time with not knowing for, for a bunch of years. I'm thinking of all my friends. Now, now there were some that slipped through the cracks, but for a while, we, life was put on hold. And as more people volunteered and got involved and did something and didn't try to stay in their normal life yeah. and, and, and actually felt like they were just like hiding, some people, you know, they have to, if everyone thinks of a way to do something for somebody else, I think that really makes a difference. I agree. Um, to do, just do something. This is so helpful for me to be talking to you. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I do this, but I, the stuff I do with my clients, I do every day, but just to be putting out a bigger message, it feels like, oh, good, you know, I, I am having an impact. And I think if everyone could think of a way that they could, do something for somebody else and not just think I'm holding on to my life as it is. And I'm just gripping and waiting for this to be over. I think that helps. I agree. Yeah. I think that, you know, so trying to lead the community through this. So our thought next, so first we did that fundraiser and there's been a lot of really great stuff with the school system. They've Mm. taken a lot of our suggestions to help 
you know, feed the kids and all of that stuff. And my next push, I believe, should be to the first thing people can do is if you have any PPE, let's get it to the hospital, you know? So to kind of do like, that would be an excellent thing for people to do. Keep a couple masks for yourself, but really the CDC is going to be putting out some guidance in the next couple of days, how to do your own masks at home, which is what people should be doing. The PPE should be reserved for the healthcare professionals. Mm -hmm. So like doing that and then then making sure people are socializing. Do people have the technology, the ability to socialize in some way, shape, or form? I know it's going to be weird, but maybe write a letter. Uh, I don't know. Uh, Make a phone call. You know, those kinds of Mm -hmm. things for people that are low tech, uh, just to try to, in your own world, that's really what it has to be. It can't be, you know, to the masses, 400,000 people, not everybody has that reach. So just the five people that live closest to you, what can you do? Yes, that's great. Yeah, our neighborhood is doing a scavenger hunt. So, they, you, you know, everybody gets some sort of thing. They post it in their window or whatever, and you have to go around and figure out who has what. So the, everybody's getting out of the house, but staying far away from each other. And, uh, and it's a nice little thing. So, you know, what kinds of things can you do in your world to help out with that? Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's really cool. If, if, I feel like if we go to May, I think, <laughs> I think people are going to start to lose their mind and start to, start to break a little bit. I think the, the restrictions. So what I was saying to my, so unfortunately what happened mm-hmm. is uh, in my friend's group, we have a couple business owners and one of them has hundreds of employees and they just had a staff death. Um, some, you know, because you know, mm. it's a 3% kill rate. So it's actually shocking that We've only had one in our group so far, but it's getting closer to home. So what I was saying to the group was, you know, vigilance is really what matters most in this phase because it feels fine. You're quarantining, you're safe, your people are safe. And you're like, well, I can start to bend the rules a little bit, you know, because we get a little fidgety. And so, so, you know, making sure that people know that, again, mindfulness, let's return back to what's real. And what's real is that it's still going on, whether you're doing it correctly or not, you still have to have that vigilance and, and maintain the, the, the straight and narrow. So I think that's great. Yeah, I think that's, I would add that just, if we think of it as just restriction mm-hmm. and there's no opportunity to do something different and learn, then we just feel restricted. If you really think, okay, this is an opportunity and this is so simple. We all to look at our old habits, how we socialized, how we would get out and take care of ourselves. If you find one little thing that, oh, this is an opportunity to change how I do this. Um, then at least th- there's also a personal benefit here. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it might be as simple as walking or I see in my partners, my partners, his parents in California, they've gotten to know their neighbors because all their neighbors have come <laughs> over and asked, can I help you? Can you, cause they're the older people in the neighborhood. Yeah. And they are, you know, there's just a lot of gratitude happening. Yeah. And so the habit of kind of keeping to yourself and they live in a beautiful part of California where they're all in fortresses, people are getting out of their fortresses. <laughs> And thinking, you know, okay, I can't go to work. Who is this person next to me? Just finding one little habit that's like, I want to look at, you know. Right. You were talking to me about eating, you know. Right. Yeah. To say, okay, I'm going to try to pay attention to this and slow it down and, and notice that. Maybe I'll get something, I'll learn something about what do I do when I stress eat. You know, just to choose something so it's not just about restriction 
It's also about growth, yeah. which is always true. Um, I think that helps. That will help us get through the long term. I'm trying to be positive as much as I can. I feel like my That's children, not your thing. Yeah, no. I know it's totally not me. So the, <laughs> the, the idea of, of this as an opportunity versus a restriction is what I'm trying to kind of teach people. Mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, if I was in college, I would be a little frustrated because of all the drinking and fun and debauchery that goes on during college. But, you know, I also did enjoy a lot of free time. And like, I've got a backlog of video games and books and movies and TV shows that I'd love to get caught up on. And, and, you know, the amount of time that you can spend with your family and all of that. And a lot of people are apprehensive about the economy. And I understand that completely. We're sure, sure. we're, We're in this weird spot where we have to be here, but we're making way less than we normally would, of course. Yes. So yes. we, we still have yes. to be here and we're here exposing ourselves and then uh, selves and then we're making mm-hmm. less money. So it's like this weird, weird place for us too. So it, it's like the, everybody's in the same spot. The entire global economy is being affected by this. I think it's like 75% of global children are out of school and all of mm-hmm. this. So, mm-hmm. so, you know, so it's like, look at this as an opportunity to take some time, you know, to slow things down a little bit, to navigate this new world, you know, build some, some better, healthier habits while we have this before it gets spun up really soon. I, I think this is going to be a while. Yes, yes. So let's talk about where this goes from here and like connect it to HIV if you can, I guess. Right, and, right. Uh, and then we can probably wrap because I think people are tired of listening to me at least. I know they're, <laughs> they're, they're like you. But <laughs> I don't know. Well, what we did long term is people did start gathering together and acknowledging, even as I said before, acknowledging the losses, acknowledging the fears that kind of became normalized in the, in the gay community. Yeah. People, um, a, a certain sort of socializing, there were healing circles and people were really coming together and both grieving and mourning, but also acknowledging much more actively what was going on inside. And even kids, you know, if, if they asked the question, they could do that, draw pictures of their fears and yeah. just put take take put them out there because yeah. and and it's it's not fear that's the problem. It's when the fear takes you over. It's like the difference between oh god, I'm afraid of this. What's going to happen? Versus I feel the fear. I'm aware of the fear, and I can put it out there and acknowledging. Just so, so there's an I see it's an opportunity to get to know your psychology. A yeah. little just a little bit more. Again, it might feel counterintuitive to deal with these dark things, these scary things. But I think as a country, you know, as a people from every age, if we can start just talking about all these things, we will be better off and we'll then have a better political system, a better country system, our brains, our country, our world. It's all systems. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and I'm, I always say that a lot of our addiction and a lot of our problem, a lot mm-hmm. of the stuff that we help treat, comes from the quiet. It's when it's quiet that that part of your brain starts talking and starts talking smack. And that's when yes, it gets really yes, dark yes, for a lot of people. Yes. So it's a great opportunity to say, listen, you, you're stuck in a room together. Now you got to talk it through. You got to stop listening to that person or at least stop paying attention to that person and build your life without that person uh, being so influential, you know? Right. We always say, you know, 
do you, are you, do you feel ready to go inside and just take some breaths and acknowledge what's, it's all going on inside of you if you just take a couple of moments. And if collectively people are doing that and they are, that's the good, again, I'm going to go to the good news. Mm -hmm. I, and they always said this about meditation. I'm an old TMer. If you have a lot of people doing meditation and it actually changes, it sounds very woo-woo, but changes <laughs> the vibration. Nice. Um, and, people, and people are kinder to each other and they don't get as triggered as quickly. That's what's get us through long-term. It's when we get triggered and we get adamant and we're always using that same muscular anger to deal no, we need to find other ways to do this. So it's, it's the opportunity to know how we protect ourselves, our first responders, our impulses. And, and we can talk about that in, a, in another time. But mm -hmm. I, that, that's my message to the world. And it's not my original message. Yeah. But we can change our relationship with our internal self here. Yeah. And then dialing it back to HIV, like... Will we be successful and what needs to happen in order for us to be successful psychologically? Well, I think to understand this as not everything's going to get back to normal really quickly, that this thing is going to be with us. I mean, that sounds scary again, but if we understand that this is a long term and it's not just a return to back the way things are and yeah. see it as an opportunity to be more aware of how we socialize, who we care about what we value, you know, if we really kind of think about those, or what's important to us, because we're all kind of realizing that, the value yeah. of our life. I think that's what got us through HIV. And people came together and they were creative. Think of the AIDS quilt. Right. And, and there was mass grieving and mass mourning. And I think that's, some of that's going to happen here. It's just not these individuals who die. And people will do remembrances and there will be memorials. We can't do that now. But I, 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 and that's maybe very sad for people that that's not an immediate return to normal. But I do think of that response to HIV and how ultimately it was that that helped us heal and change our behavior. That was really important to have these gatherings where people remembered people and it was a collectiveness that brought people together. I, I don't know if you remember any of that. I do. Um, okay. And it was, it was lovely. And it did spark a lot of grief, but it also a lot of creativity and a lot of change and in, in a good way. And, you know, we're all kind of like artists in residence doing our own thing, residents at our home, <laughs> to right. doing our art. And we're not there yet, but that's like, I see that, down the road, this kind of mass grieving, not just to push it aside and get back to normal. We'll get back to normal and we'll have to deal with the grief and the loss and what happened. And hopefully that means social change and political change if we're lucky. Excellent. Steve, thank you so much for coming on. Very insightful. And uh, I hope that we can work together soon to help some people in our community. I would love to do more of this. It's uh, my pleasure helped me a lot just to talk about this and get and kind of put it all together. Thank you. You're welcome. I want to thank Dr. Stephen Ball for coming on the episode and sharing his story, plus giving us some insight to how our brains are working away during this crisis. You know, our whole thing about meditation and mindfulness. You got to stop listening to that crazy person in your head.
For more Dr. Ball, visit stephenballphd.com, S-T-E-V-E-N-B-A-L-L-P-H-D.com. And we're definitely going to have a free webinar with Dr. Ball to help people with all of this. I'm shooting for April 8th, and we'll have the replay available. Sign up to get access at woodstockvitamins.com slash COVID coping, C-O-V-I-D-C-O-P-I-N-G. And for all our COVID materials, visit woodstockvitamins.com COVID-19. And please, please, please share our podcast with your friends so we can rock even more people's world. You know, we're, we're doing our thing out here. We want some more fans. I'm going to be honest. So that's it for this week. Until next time, keep listening, keep learning, stay the freak home, wash your hands, and don't cough in people's faces. Take care. Take care.